לקוטי שיחס חלק י"ז, פרקי אביס, פרק שלישי. The second Mishnah in the third chapter of Ethics of Our Fathers reads, Rabbi Hanina the Vice High Priest said, Heve mespalol b'shloime shal malchus, she'el mole meira ish esrei'ehu chayim b'loi. Pray for the welfare of the sovereign, for were it not for the fear inspired by governance, every man would swallow the other alive. Now Perkei Aves, Ethics of Our Fathers, were written, say our sages, so that one who wants to live with pious practices beyond the immediate and absolute letter of Jewish law should fulfill these ethics of our fathers, the words of the sages. In the first Mishnah of this chapter, for example, we're taught to reflect upon three things so that we do not come to sin. Now the Torah itself requires only that we not sin, but the Mishnah brings us an additional teaching to behave in a way that at all times will prevent the possibility of sin, and that is to consider those three specific things. But the teaching to pray for the welfare of the government or of the sovereign doesn't quite seem to be an instruction that is a midas chasidus, a pious practice, or a behavior that is beyond the letter of the law. In fact, preventing people from, as the Mishnah says, swallowing one another alive, harming another, is a distinct and serious obligation in the commandments of Torah itself. Here's another question. This one regarding the terminology used in the Mishnah. Man would swallow his friend alive. Why not use the term hariga? One would kill another. They would kill each other if not for fear of governance or law. Or if it's about thievery, say gzela, thievery. These are words used in Torah. Why this new term, man would eat his neighbor alive? And here's another puzzling issue. Everything in this world depends on how the Jew walks through this world. Rashi tells us immediately in the very first commentary on Bracious that the world was created for Israel, who are called Reshit, God's first. So this instruction to pray for the government, because if not for this fear, man would swallow his neighbor alive, might be the case for a Jew as well, God forbid. In fact, the Jews' fulfillment of this lesson brings this energy into the world, preventing an atmosphere of man swallowing his friend alive. But how is it even possible, though, to suggest that a Jew who has clear directives from God about how to treat one's fellow man and the prohibitions of murder would, without fear of the government, swallow up his fellow? And not just his fellow, the word that is used is re'ehu, his friend. Let's look at the very next teaching in this Mishnah. Rabbi Hanina ben Tradyoin says, Shnayim sheyeshim ve'ein beinehem divrei teira, hareza moshev leitzim. If two sit together and don't share words of teira, it's a session of scorners. The Mishnah continues to say, but two who sit together and words of Torah are spoken between them, the divine presence rests between them. Now we have often discussed how these teachings are set out with accuracy, impacting as they do the practical halachic application of the moment of consecration of marriage 
on the condition that a man knows Mishnah. Three laws are sufficient for this statement to be valid, and practically, perhaps for this reason, the Alter Rebbe incorporates the tractate of ethics of our fathers into the Siddur, so that we know the setup of the Mishnah. How then do these words about two sitting together with no words of Torah or with words of Torah between them connect to the teaching, pray for the welfare of the government? They're in the same Mishnah because they're connected, but how? We don't seem to see an immediate connection. In fact, it's a further Mishnah, a teaching of Rabbi Shimon, who says that three who sit to eat at one table and do not share Torah, it is as though they ate sacrifices offered to the dead, which speaks about sharing Torah when in company and the value of that, that seems to connect to this part of our Mishnah. The explanation is as follows. Because ethics of our fathers is a compilation of teachings, of pious practices, for the individual who is already and completely devoted and committed to his Torah study and mitzvah observance, and all he may be missing is the additional piousness, it's self-understood that he doesn't need to be told not to steal from another Jew, and he doesn't need to be told about harming the life of another Jew. What these words, swallow his friend alive, mean is that while he means his friend no harm, he wants for his friend's actions or for another Jew's actions and even for his existence in reality to become subsumed within his reality. One might be a Torah scholar and very careful in mitzvah observance and thus observe the actions of the simpler Jew with judgment, even derision, and conclude that the other fellow must be somehow humbled before him and even see this as a merit for the other guy to be swallowed up within the exalted self of him, the scholar. Intellectual reasoning would not negate the possibility of this kind of assumption and behavior, because logically, as the Torah scholar we are talking about is neither a fool nor evil and not even haughty, it would make sense for his friend, who is very distant from his qualities and who depends on him, on the Torah scholar's knowledge and tutorship, to indeed become subsumed within his friend, the Torah scholar. So logic won't determine different thinking here. The only way for the scholarly Jew to negate this kind of thinking is through the adherence to the pious behavior of pray for the welfare of the sovereign or government, which will awaken a deeper fear of the king of kings, the highest form of governance. And he will in turn then not feel greater in comparison to another. In the Talmud, our sages teach, the earthly kingship reflects heavenly kingship. We understand this to mean that the monarchy in this world descends in a spiritual process of devolution from the divine kingship on high. A king in this world has roots in a spiritual minister above, and the minister of this earthly monarch is itself or himself rooted in a higher level of spirituality all the way back to the sovereignty of the king of kings, God. So when there is a healthy governance on earth, 
it is because it is strongly reflecting its root, divine sovereignty. So a Jew who seeks to live piously, seeing everything as it reflects its divine root and truth, prays for the well-being of the government because he is experiencing a true vision of God's sovereignty and divine royalty. This earthly sovereign can then evoke for him a fear for God, the King of Kings himself. This awe and fear of the divine affects a humility, a humbleness before others, because God's sovereignty is the great equalizer between all, great and small. As great as one may be, he takes up no more space in reality than one who is truly small spiritually. But the Sahara, the inclination towards evil, is a professional at his task in causing someone to veer off the path of righteousness, even the one who can contemplate the true source of the well-being of the sovereign, if he does this on his own, can be swayed after a time by the machinations of the evil inclination, and his contemplation can weaken and his fear become dulled. Therefore, the Mishnah teaches us to pray for the well-being of a sovereign, to beg God in his goodness and in his unbounding kindness, to help him experience and feel divine sovereignty through sovereignty on earth. And he does not depend only on the contemplations of his own mind. Now we can understand the continuation of this second Mishnah. Two who sit together and do not speak words of Torah are like scorners. Proof that a person who seeks to live piously has nullified his sense of greatness over another, lies in the way he studies Torah, in a manner of two who sit together and Torah is discussed. The real essence of a Torah student is his total involvement in Torah. Whatever else he has to do is secondary to his Torah study. Because these secondary things, like intelligence or strength or wealth, are temporary and they pass. Verse in Yirmiyahu teaches, Let not the intelligent man glory in his intelligence, the strong man in his strength, and the wealthy man in his wealth. But only in this should one glory, in his earnest devotion to me, to God. Torah alone is eternal. It alone is our life and has longevity. As the Brisa teaches in the conclusion of the tractate of Kedushin, Rabbi Noharai says, I set aside all the trades in the world, and I teach my son only Torah. As a person partakes of its reward in this world, and the principal reward remains for him in the world to come, which is not true of other professions, whose rewards are only in this world. Furthermore, if a person comes to be ill or old or undergoes suffering and is unable to be involved in his trade, behold, he dies in hunger. But with regard to the Torah, it is not so, since one can study it under all circumstances. Rather, it preserves him from all evil and sin in his youth and provides him with a future and hope in his old age. So as Torah really becomes the essence of a person whose life is completely involved in Torah study, it's understood that his humility is in line with the humility with which he studies. This, then, is what when two sit 
and there are no words of Torah between them means. If a person studies Torah, but experiences the self who is studying, and the sensation of how great his mind is, and how great his Torah ideas are, then the two aren't learning equally, because he considers his study great, and his study partner insignificant. He is a Rosh Yeshiva in his eyes, his partner just a plain student. It's only when one studies with complete nullification of self and without any ego that he is studying with a friend, two sitting together as one, where none feel any sense of greatness over the other. It's then that God's presence dwells among them, a manifestation and revelation of God's sovereignty. When a Jew works on nullifying self through prayer for the well-being of the sovereign, and is in a space of two who sit together as one, and the divine presence rests among them or between them, it's not only sovereignty as it's enclosed in this world that manifests, but the level of divine supernal kingship and his fear and humility before God become complete. According to everything we've discussed, we'll further understand the continuation of this Mishnah, which provides a verse to support the teaching that when two sit together and speak Torah, the divine presence rests between them. The Mishnah quotes a verse from Alachi, Oz nidbru yurei Hashem, isha re'ehu, ve'yakshev Hashem ve'yishma, ve'yakosev sefer zikorin, lefonav, li'yurei Hashem, u'lochesh ve'yishmei. Then those who feared God spoke with one another, and God listened and heard. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared God and thought upon his name. You might ask, if two are sitting together and speaking words of Torah, why the need to refer to them by the description of Yuri Hashem, God-fearing? Why is the appellation necessary here? The fact that they have words of Torah between them that cause the divine presence to rest between them is because their speech is that of Yireh Hashem. Their prayer for the welfare of the sovereign brings a level of revealed awe and fear of the King of Kings. Their talking in Torah as God-fearing people is the exact opposite of people swallowing one another up. On this path, they arrive to the level of Cheshve who can hear the essence of God in all of Torah.